Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me on Facebook during the week, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher. Um, I'm on Spotify, uh, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, whatever iTunes is using for for podcasts today, um, or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So a quick programming note. I don't actually feel like it's worth taking the time to talk about the Nobel Prizes. <laughs> now, this might be a little bit off uh, the cuff, but s- since their inception, uh, they've basically been pretty problematic. Um, they are very uh, Eurocentric um, for many of the prizes, especially the um, Literature Prize and some other things. Um, the science prizes have skewed very much towards men. And of course, there are statistical reasons for that, but still. um, And of course, I have talked about more than once the quote unquote Nobel disease, uh, where once prominent scientists devolve into basically cranks uh, after having received an award because they suddenly think that they can have an opinion on anything. And uh, so talking about the prize in literature, though, you know, this is a science show, it still is relevant. Uh, If you don't know, part, it was awarded to two people, but one of them is an apologist for war crimes. Um, So not a great look. Also, they were both, again, European, and there's been a big issue that um, the Nobel basically only gives literature prizes to uh, Europeans, uh, with the possible exception or with the notable exception of Bob Dylan. But that was just, I think, to make everybody want to tear their hair out uh, more than anything, because they were just sick of people saying that they only gave it to Europeans. So they gave it to someone completely random. Um, Though that's not to say that Dylan isn't a good uh, writer. But um, I think it was just kind of like a oh, you don't like what we do, then here, this. (laughs) But they've gone right back to their old ways this year. So I just, I just don't find the Nobel Prize to be that interesting anymore. And so uh, I suppose technically, we have spent some time talking about it, but I'm not going to talk about the specifics. Okay, let us move on and talk about more interesting things. And so first off, we have a couple of updates. The first one is on the InSight Lander's heat probe. And so this is very exciting because it looks like the plan uh, that they devised is actually working. The heat probe has sunk around three centimeters or just over an inch. And of course, this doesn't seem like a whole huge amount of movement, but it gives real hope to the idea that the probe or the mole, as they call it, uh, did not actually hit a rock that will prevent it from being driven farther into the soil. It just hit a patch of soil that was more dense than what they were expecting. And so the mole or heat flow and physical properties package, as it is more uh properly known, was designed by the German Aerospace Center, the DLR, and uh, they tweeted earlier this week, good news from hashtag Mars. (laughs) Confirmed after three centimeters progress, it appears the DLR um, 
Germany mole on NASA's InSight was not stopped in its tracks by a rock under the Martian surface, but had in, lo- in fact lost friction. And so then NASA tweeted shortly after, with an assist from my robotic arm, the mole is digging again. We are just starting this new campaign and are hopeful we can continue to dig. So again, hopefully uh, there will be continued progress as the mole really does need to get a fair amount deeper into the interior before its mission can truly begin. It's supposed to get a couple of, I think it was supposed to like get down to like 14 feet or something like that, which is not so great for where it is right now. Um, So yes, uh, that seems like it is very good news coming out of those agencies. So hopefully it will continue to be good news. We will continue to see that uh, be able to sink down further into the interior of the Martian crust. And we can now congratulate Christina Coe and Jessica Meyer uh, for their successful first all-female spacewalk. And so everything seems to have gone perfectly. They moved a 232-pound battery charger from the far to the far left side of the lab's solar array truss in order to replace a failed unit that had uh, ended up making them lose some power in the station. And so this was the fourth walk for Co or Coach. I'm sorry, I, f- I still don't remember exactly how to pronounce her name. I feel so bad. Uh, and the first for Meyer, as well as the 221st for the station as a whole, which has been in operation since 1998. And what's actually really important about this is that it was a necessary spacewalk meant to do legitimate repairs, and the women were able to do it without incident. This wasn't meant to be some sort of photo op or anything like that. It was important, but it wasn't meant to be just to show off uh, these women. And so it is really good to be thankful that NASA continues, despite occasional missteps, to be a leader in having really strong female role models for young women to look up to. And so that is something that has been a continual um, part of NASA is that there have been women on the front lines of NASA, both as astronauts and as Um, programmers and all sorts of other roles and so it's important that we keep that up because that really is a place where people are inspired especially young women okay so those updates are all set now and let's move on to a new story which is at the intersection of chemistry and art Now, I've probably mentioned this before, um, but the idea that we have, especially of, say, Greece and Rome, uh, that they were filled with stark white marble statues and busts, that's a fabrication. That's a complete and utter um, lie. It's not at all true. Um, It's probably a Victorian thing, um, just because generally if something has been badly Um, mistaken in history. It's almost certainly traceable back to someone in Victorian times, Um, though not always, but it's a a fairly good rule of thumb. So uh, the classical statues that you see in museums would most likely have been 
brightly painted in antiquity. And so they've actually done some studies and, uh, and in fact, some small remains of pigments actually have been um, preserved on some speed on some pieces. And so they've done experiments where they do um, like x-ray um, or infrared. They look at things in infrared and things like that. And there's actually some pieces I will, um, when I get off, I will link on the Facebook page to an article that can show you some of the recreations that they've done. And so there are pieces where they've actually figured out what the colors would have been and then made casts and actually painted those casts to look like they what they would have done in ancient Greece, in ancient Rome, um, Greece especially. I think actually the Romans might have done some of the uh, scuffing off themselves, uh, but I don't remember <laughs> precisely. And uh, we also know that other antiquities and other places uh, would have once been covered in bright colors. So for instance, the temples and ball courts of and all of the cities in Central and South America would have once been covered in uh, bright hues. They would have all been covered in bright white um, plaster. And then that plaster would have been uh, actually painted with all sorts of colors. And so it was in Egypt. Now, of course, in Egypt, we actually do have quite a lot of preserved pigmentation, uh, much wall art, uh, other decorations, they do survive. Um, but also, we have lost a lot. And so the palace of King Apries I was situated in the Nile Delta, uh, from which he would have ruled between 589 to around 568 BCE. And so fragments from the palace, uh, especially the top of a column, uh, which have been stored at the Glyptotect Museum in Copenhagen, have recently been examined by a group of researchers from the British Museum, the University of Pisa, and the University of Southern Denmark. We are interested in learning more about the use of pigments, binders, and the techniques associated with using them in the antiquity. It has obvious relevance for art historians, but it can also tell us about how different cultures in the Mediterranean and the Near East exchanged materials and knowledge and thus connected, says Cecile Bronze, classical archaeologist at Glyptotect. And so to learn more, they teamed with Professor of Archaeometry Kari Lund Rasmussen from the University of Southern Denmark. He is an expert in advanced chemical analyses of archaeological objects. And so previously, he has looked at Tycho Brahe's beard, uh, Italian monk skeletons, medieval syphilis-infested bones, uh, sacred relics, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. So a pretty good resume. <laughs> and so publishing in the journal Heritage Science, the researchers announced the discovery of two pigments previously thought to have originated much later than in antiquity, at least as pigments. They're naturally occurring minerals, but uh, their use as pigments. And so the pigments are lead ant antominate yellow and lead tin yellow. And so again, both are naturally occurring mineral pigments. We do not know whether the two pigments were commonly available or rare, Future chemical studies of other antiquity artifacts may shed more light, he said. 
Now, both have been found previously in paintings dating to the Middle Ages or more recently. The oldest known painting with lead tin yellow comes from Europe around 1300 CE. Lead antimonate yellow had previously only been found beginning with works from the 16th century. And so binders for the pigments included traces of rubber and animal glue. And so the rubber is most likely from an acacia tree. And so this was actually widely used as a binder. Uh, and it has been found in places like the Temple of, at Karnak, uh, in the murals in Queen Nefertiti's tomb, and in other places in um, Egypt. And so animal glue was also common, being derived from boiled animal parts, especially hides and bones. Now, they also found other uh, pigments that weren't necessarily a surprise. So they found calcite and gypsum, which were both white. Egyptian blue, which was a synthetic pigment invented in the third millennium BCE. Um, Atacomite, which is green. Hematite for red. And orpiment for yellow gold or for a golden yellow. And so, yeah, very interesting to be able to find traces of these pigments that we didn't realize had been used that early in time. Um, and so it's just really interesting. And actually, we have a couple more uh, really fascinating finds from Egypt in this week's uh, show. So it's pretty fascinating. Uh, so next up, the Egyptian Ministry of Antiquities has announced that they have discovered a quote-unquote industrial zone in uh, present-day, what is now present-day Luxor. Um, and so the site was used by workers to manufacture items for royal tombs. Zahi Hawass, who is apparently back in uh, control in Egypt despite a momentary uh, lapse of uh, confidence from um, people in Egypt. Apparently he has gotten back on top. Um, I don't know anything about the man other than I've seen him in a ton of National Geographic and thing, National Geographic specials and things like that. He seems like a very competent archaeologist, but I know um, he did have some uh, unfortunate times during the um, the revolution that happened briefly in um, Egypt, but I think that people kind of understood that he has always been the kind of poster um, archaeologist for Egypt, and so it probably made sense to make sure that he continued. Um, and so he announced the finds at a press conference last Thursday. Now, the site is located in the West Valley, which is referred to colloquially as the Valley of the Monkeys. And there's another site in the East Valley, which is referred to as, more famously, the Valley of Kings. And, of course, that is the site of many royal burials, including that of King Tutankhamun. Now, excavations have been underway in the West Valley since 2017. And found and in the um and they found a site where funerary funerary ornaments were being made on an industrial scale and so this area really is an unprecedented find each workshop had a different purpose hawass told cnn some were used to make pottery 
others to produce gold artifacts, and others still to manufacture furniture. And so within that area, there were actually 30 individual workshops that were discovered. And so they consisted of houses that would have been used for storage and cleaning of funeral furniture uh, meant for the tombs of royalty. And so pottery at the site dates back as far as the 18th dynasty from circa 1549 BCE to 1292 BCE. And this is actually the time, all the way back to the time when Egypt first rose as a superpower in the ancient Near East. Also discovered was an oven to burn clay and metal and a pit for drinking water that would have been used by the workers. And so a bunch of other things have been found, including a scarab ring, hundreds of inlay beads, uh, some decorated with the wings of the Egyptian god Horus, which was important in funerary rites, uh, copper tools and gold foil that would have been used to adorn royal coffins. Now in the East Valley, the team has found a tomb, KV-65, which still contained tools from its construction. And so basically, this is a huge excavation. Uh, it is the largest since Howard Carter uh, first went into the valley and stumbled upon uh, King Tut's tomb. Um, let's be real. I always like to be a little bit real about that, that Howard Carter kind of fell into that. Um, <laughs> so, um, and of course, there is no curse. Just, just as an FYI, it's never happened. There is no curse. Uh, it's all just a series of uh, unfortunate events that happened to coincide in a way that, of course, people with pattern-seeking minds, which is all humans, uh, were able to sort of put things together in a way that uh, makes sense if you're a conspiracy theorist, but really doesn't in the real world. So the team is exploring the area near the tombs of Ramses VII, uh, Hapshetsit, and Ramses III, according to Aram Online, an Egyptian news source. In addition, 42 small huts used to store tools were found in the East Valley. They also found hieroglyphic paintings, fragments of carved tombs, and rings from the 19th dynasty. And in an announcement just days later, uh, Hawass and his team have shown off 20 sealed and intact sarcophagi, which were found stacked in two layers inside of a very large tomb. The tomb was found in Al-Asif, uh, and that is a necropolis on the Nile River's west bank uh, in what was once the Egyptian capital of Thebes, but again is now near Luxor. The sarcophagi are wooden and decorated in shades of red, green, white, and black. And the state of preservation and the fact that they are still sealed is a true rarity in Egyptian archaeology. And so we don't yet know the specific time periods that they belong to. However, the majority of tombs in this necropolis uh, hold remains of nobles and government officials from the late period between 664 and 332 BCE. This is unprecedented, Hawass told CNN's Julie Zog and Norhan Mustafa. Up until now, everything we knew about 
the region came from the tombs themselves, but this new discovery will allow us to shed a light on the tools and techniques used to produce the royal coffins and the furniture placed in the tombs. Now, unfortunately, more information will be given at a press conference tomorrow, um, but I still thought it was important to talk about it because it's very interesting and maybe you'll want to actually listen to the press conference at some point. Um, But I will uh, catch up with the press conference um, sometime before next week. And if there's anything that sounds really fascinating that I should share, I will definitely give an update. And I just think it's so cool because it's amazing how a place that has had so much done to it has been so thoroughly explored. It just continues to delight with major finds and it just continues to show how incredible the Egyptians were. I mean, they just were doing these immense, immense amounts of production of funerary goods, of buildings, of jewelry, of everything. Um, And they just were exceptionally prolific. And so it's very interesting to continue to be able to find these amazing and beautiful items. Okay, so in other archaeological news, archaeologists from the City Museum of Vincosta Vinkovsi and the Institute of Archaeology from Zagreb uh, presented the results of an excavation that they've been conducting at a site in Stari Jankovsi, Croatian. These are, it's in Croatia. So I'm sorry for having a little bit of trouble with the uh, Eastern European uh, Slavic. pronunciations, not my strong suit. And so um, in what they are calling Tumulus 1, which is an earthen mound in which a large burial chamber was found, they actually found something really interesting and cool that I wanted to talk about. They actually found a Roman chariot complete with two wheels and the bones of the horses that would have pulled it in life. And so excavations began in 2017 And so this is the first time something like this has been uncovered in Croatia. Now, such burials would have been confined to extremely wealthy families in the south of the Pannonian Plain uh, during the Roman era. Such families were associated with important roles in the administrative, social, and economic life of the province of Pannonia. And so the Tumulus is actually situated near the ancient city of Sabal on an important thoroughfare that would have connected the Apennine Peninsula with Pannonia, the Balkans, and Asia Minor. So it would have been quite the uh, trade route through uh, that area in Roman times. And so it would have been kind of a marker of how important these people were to have these incredibly large burials right on the side of the road, basically, in on an important Roman road. Now, the burial is estimated to be from the 3rd century CE, and is actually one of the youngest examples of this type of burial custom. This is a sensational, unique discovery in the whole of Croatia, because this is the first time in our country that an archaeologically investigated and documented one of these complex funerary beliefs from the antiquity. 
Now the long process of restoration and conservation follows, but so does the complete analysis of the find. I hope that in a few years we will know more about the family whose members were buried in this area decades ago, 1800 years ago. We are also more interested in the horses themselves, that is, whether they were bred here or came from other parts of the empire, and what will tell us more about the very important and wealthy, the very the importance and wealth of this family. We will achieve this through cooperation with domestic as well as numerous European institutions, said Marco Dizdar, director of the Institute of Archaeology. Um, there was a little bit of help with uh, Google Translate there, so it's a little bit of a rough translation. Um, it seemed to be pretty good, but um, again, uh, I did try and look at the original article in um, from the Croatian um media so <laughs> okay so the area around Vinkovci uh, has actually been in continuous habitation for some 8,300 years and in fact Croatians claim it to be the oldest continually inhabited city in Europe uh, but when I tried to uh, confirm that most of the rest of the internet doesn't agree um, <laughs> And so uh, most of the uh, rest of the internet gives the title to uh, Plovdir in Bulgaria, uh, gives them, gives that city that title of the oldest in Europe. Um, but clearly this is a very old area that had an important uh, Roman connection. And since 1982, the entire area has been declared a protected archaeological zone. And we know that two Roman emperors, Valens and Valentinian I, are known to have been born in Vincoci. Um, and so that is pretty cool. And like, it just, the picture is really interesting to just be able to see how, I mean, I feel bad for the horses, obviously, but to have this just, you know, to be able to actually bury a chariot with horses would have shown that they were extremely wealthy um, because even in ancient Roman times, horses would have been a very, very valuable commodity. Um, and so to be able to bury horses in a grave would have been a sign of extreme wealth. And uh, even though they were technically in what could be considered kind of the outskirts uh, of the Roman uh, core um, of the um, empire. They were still definitely very, very important and very rich. Okay, let's take a moment and do some PSAs and some show promos, and then we're going to talk about a story that combines archaeology and astronomy. So hang on for just a moment while we do that. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, 
Lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Aquí habla Marta Martínez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. Hi, I'm Mark Sherry. I'm Ed Malachowski. And I'm Ace Housethor, and we're some of the hosts for the New Music Alliance Radio Hour, which goes up every Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m. We're going to focus on presenting some of the best original music to come from the Western New England area, both past and present. In addition to myself and Ace and Mark, we have Mark Beauvais, David Sokol, and Betsy Cordes for the ride. And as always, keep, keep on rocking. Okay, we are back. And so, as I said, we're going to talk about a story that combines archaeology and astronomy, or technically astrology at this point uh, in history. So um, ancient Assyrian tablets uh, have been found that seem to reference a massive solar storm that occurred um, in ancient history. And so recent analysis found evidence of an ancient solar storm that would have taken place around 660 uh, BCE. It was recorded in energetic particles left in tree rings and in ice cores around the world. And so a team from Japan and the United Kingdom wondered if they could find documentary evidence of the storm in ancient astronomical slash um, uh, astrological uh, records. And so the Assyrians were very prolific writers. Um, and the nice thing about them was that what they wrote on were clay tablets. Uh, and often what would happen is that if there was a fire or something like that, uh, the clay tablets would get fired and thus become uh, 
pottery that actually survived really, really well. Um, and so this is really great. Uh, in the 19th century, thousands of tablets were found um, from the Assyrian Empire in Mesopotamia. And we I've talked about this before, people are still going through them, still actually translating them because there were just so many. Um, they included things like treaties, uh, just stories, uh, astrological reports, uh, and of course, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And so it's these astronomical slash uh, astrological reports, which would have included observations of planets, comets, meteorites, and uh, from these observations, predictions of omens. And so again, astronomy did largely begin as astrology. You looked at the stars in order to figure out what was going to happen on Earth. And I think that because of that, being generous, uh, that that's part of the reason why people still have a hard time distinguishing the two in the present day. And so um, the researchers combed through a set of these tablets that have astrological reports on them, and they were looking for references to a reddish luminous phenomena in the sky. And so this would have been caused by the sun's particles interacting with the atmosphere. Basically, you get a ginormous um, aurora when this happens. When you have these big solar storms, you just get a huge aurora, and it's usually um, more red in hue than the traditional sort of purple, blue, green um, of regular aurora. And so according to their paper published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters, Three reports seem to mention auroral phenomena. Based on the age ranges believed for the astrologers actually making the reports, they found one with a report of a red glow from circa 679 to 655 BCE, another of a red cloud from 677 to 666 BCE, and a third of that, and a third that says that red covered the sky from between 679 and 670 BCE. And so it may seem weird to think that people in ancient Assyria, uh, which is pretty, is much closer to the equator than it is to uh, what is now the North Pole, uh, for them to be able to see an aurora. But it turns out that magnetic north, where the aurora actually does originate from, was actually much closer to the Middle East in the 7th century BCE. And of course, as we know, uh, when you have really strong solar storms, it actually causes the aurora to dip into much more southerly territory than normal average auroras do. And of course, these dates line up fairly rough, fairly nicely with the radioactive elements found in the tree ring data and ice cores. But of course, it doesn't mean that this is precisely the same thing that they were seeing. But it is really a sort of very good and promising um, correlation. And so the solar storm that hit was actually quite powerful. And it rivals a few other candidates for the strongest storm ever produced, with one in 775 CE and a slightly weaker event around 993 CE. Now, researchers are actually hoping to better understand uh, and, in fact, hopefully be able to predict such storms someday 
because in this day and age, they will wreak havoc with our electrical infrastructure. Um, I think I've mentioned this before that uh, it's, you know, everything we do is based on electricity and on communications and satellites and things like that. And when you have intense solar storms, all of that can get fried. Um, there was a there's a famous uh, episode when there was a solar storm um, during the era of um, the telegraph, and actually, literally, um, electricity was um, poured down the um, telegraph lines, and actually, some of the telegraph stations were burned down, and so it can be really powerful and really, really dangerous. And so if we can predict them, we'd be a lot better off because we'd be able to, um, you know, have contingency plans and things like that. Um, and, you know, that'd be good because humans are terrible at contingency plans. <laughs> um, we're really bad at it. We should really try and be better. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for now, everything's fine. Sun's fine. It's actually been in a very low state right now. Um, it has not been doing a whole heck of a lot. Um, it's been in a near dormant state, which is, you know, it's just part of a cycle. So it's not a problem that it's doing that. Okay, so now I want to move on. And uh, probably for the rest of the uh, show, talk about something that's kind of been being hyped a little bit too much. Um, and so you may have seen this if you've been uh, looking around on the web on the web in the last couple of days. And so it is this idea that there is a new quote unquote blob uh, that has been um, that is now being shown at the Paris Zoological Park and that it's this weird uh, crazy organism that's like brand new and it's crazy and it has all these weird things going on and yeah um, and people have been really hyping it up and so while it's it is actually a fascinating organism it's not actually new uh, and we do know what it is. <laughs> it's actually one of my personal favorite types of organisms. Um, it is a slime mold. Now, the article from Reuters, which is what most people have uh, been passing around, calls it a mysterious new organism uh, and says that it is named the Blob in homage of the classic horror film uh, starring Steve McQueen. But this blob has no intention of consuming everything in its path. It's just a weird little part of nature that people are just now discovering and realizing is really cool. Uh, and so the Reuters article notes that uh, the blob is a living being which belongs to one of nature's mysteries, according to Bruno David, director of the Paris Museum of Natural History, of which the zoological park is part. It surprises us because it has no brain but is able to learn. And if you merge two blobs, the one that has learned will transmit its knowledge to the other, David added. We know for sure it is not a plant, but we don't really, if it's an animal or a fungus, it behaves very surprisingly for something that looks like a mushroom. It has the behavior of an animal. It is able to learn. Now, again, um, not to say anything about Bruno David, 
But um, yeah, we do actually know some of those things. <laughs> um, and so uh, again, that article talks about how uh, it has 700 and almost 720 sexes that it moves without legs or wings, that it can heal itself in two minutes if cut in half. And so, you know, all these amazing properties. And so, yeah, technically most of that is kind of true. Um, and so let's talk about what it actually really is, uh, what this mysterious organism that is being so wildly described. It is, in fact, Physarum polycephalum, as noted before, a slime mold. It is a member of the phylum Mycetozoa, which is a group of amoeboid aerial spore-producing protists. And so protists are somewhat weird. Uh, they are classified as uh, not plant, animal, or fungus. Uh, they are their own thing, but they're not all that mysterious. What they are is basically a massive single-celled organism that is composed through the merger of many smaller component specimens. And so basically it's a giant cell with tons of nuclei in it from each of the individual's of which it's a part. And it often looks like dog vomit. <laughs> and in fact, a common name for it is dog vomit slime mold. <laughs> and so it's the most um, well-known slime mold. And so they are not the only kind of organism that forms such colonial existences. Uh, a more complex version of such a configuration would, of course, be siphonophores, which are weird Weird, weird, weird too. They're, they're, I would argue they're weirder. Uh, they are considered single organisms, but are actually composed of thousands, sometimes millions of individual parts. And each of those individual parts have sort of certain sec sections of them are different. Uh, and they require being a part of the whole in order to really survive. Though again, that's a much more complex organism than a slime mold, obviously. But that doesn't make slime molds boring. They're actually quite fascinating. Um, I actually posted already a link to the uh, on the Facebook page to a video that went viral um, a while back of some footage of molds. And uh, not all of it is slime mold, but of molds uh, set to the theme song for uh, Game of Thrones, if you're interested. Uh, and so one of the big things about them is that they're actually able to solve complex problems despite lacking a nervous system, um, which of course is weird because people generally think that in order to do things, you have to have this kind of, um, you know, we're constantly talking about how we're finding uh, connections in brains of birds and other uh, large Anim or other animals with large brains compared to their body size and talking about, you know, how many neurons a brain has in order to kind of think about how much it can be able to solve complex problems, whereas this slime mold is just doing it without anything. <laughs> they can solve mazes and traps. They can alter their appearance depending on the surrounding conditions. And they are especially able to find the most efficient path to food uh, much more easily than would be expected from an organism that, again, lacks any kind of nervous system and is composed of a collective of semi-individual organisms. And so the, res 
So different researchers have used slime molds in all sorts of ways. Uh, in one instance, it was used to create a map of the United States and of the ancient Roman road network uh, from between the 1st and 4th centuries CE, using basically oatmeal <laughs> to tempt the slime mold in the right directions. Now, the American map started with the slime mold in New York, and it was then allowed to move across the country uh, by the air, the areas of the country, creating its own highways to other cities that were represented by, again, those clumps of oatmeal. Now, this particular map was made as an example for popular science um, for an article that they were doing on slime molds. But other maps uh, have been made. Uh, there was one by researchers Andy Anim Animatsky, and Jeff Jones, who are specialists in unconventional computing, uh, which is a great title, <laughs> at the University of the West of England in Bristol. And so they showed that left to a slime mold's own devices, it will actually follow paths very similar to those of actual roads in the UK. So they basically tried to get it to... Um, show again the most efficient way to get to some places and it showed that oh wait it's actually going towards some of those roads and so they're able to create these maps because what the slime mold does was it actually reaches out tendrils seeking food and retracts those that are suboptimal giving more research resources to those that are the most resilient to fault or damage now they can be used to aid computer models of ideal roads or communication lines. So that's kind of what they were doing in that case. Now, they're also good at solving the classic traveling salesman problem, which can offer insight into hardware-based information processing. Now, I'm pretty sure I've talked about this before, um, and I'm pretty sure I talked about it actually at the time when this article came out about having the slime mold do it. Um, but in case you don't know, uh, the idea of the traveling salesman problem is that a salesman must visit N cities, where N is any integer, uh, going to each city only once, and then returning to their home location. And so the problem is to find the shortest possible route. Now, it was first described in the 1800s, but has been developed into a test for um, combinatorial optimization. Combinatorial optimization. Part of the complexity is that as n becomes larger, the potential solutions increase exponentially rather than linearly, requiring huge amounts of processor power, processing power, potentially. So a TSP with just four cities only has three possible solutions, but a TSP with just eight cities has 2,520 possible solutions. So you see how when you scale it up, it it's becomes much, much more difficult. Now, as for how they share information as they fuse with other organisms, we're not quite sure yet how they do that, though... Recent evidence suggests that they are actually able to habituate to negative stimuli, such as high salt concentrations or noxious chemicals, by basically absorbing the chemicals and getting used to them. <laughs> 
And so this might then be part of how they would be able to share quote unquote memories because they would surely they would simply share the chemicals as well as everything else that they've absorbed. Um, and they probably are able to know where they've been because, well, they are a slime mold. <laughs> so they leave a residue uh, as they move. And they actually move extremely slowly. You can actually only visualize the movement uh, by photographing the organism over several days. They have a top speed of one millimeter per hour. And so P polycephalum usually starts out as a brilliant yellow, which is when it's compared to dog vomit. Um, but unfortunately, it soon fades to a gray and then eventually to a brown powder, which is composed of spores. Now, the spores are the origin of the claim that the, that the organism has almost 720 sexes. So the spores actually hatch into amoebas, but those amoebas only have some of the genetic information needed to form a new organism. So they have to basically find other compatible amoebas that have other versions of the genetic information to combine with those, which then are able to form zygotes. And then those zygotes actually merge together to form the large single-celled slime mold. And so the spores can stay dormant for up to 75 years uh, and then germinate. So they're, you know, hardy fellows like our friends, the uh, tardigrades and other uh, tiny sort of animals, sort of knots <laughs> that are on this uh, sort of uh, near microscopic scale. Now, for many years, they were actually studied by mycologists, and they actually still retain a place in many mycology textbooks uh, because people basically thought they were a fungus. But they are not classified as a fungus because they ingest bacteria, fungal spores, and potentially smaller protozoa, and then they eat them rather than breaking down organic matter using um, their own chemical um, makeup in order to create, you know, more simple chemicals. And so um, fungus break things down, but they just eat things just like any other organism. They ingest them, they break them down, and then they absorb the nutrients themselves. And so basically what happens is that when they're kind of trying to figure things out, the whole of the organism will expand um, and contract, pushing the cytoplasm inside around, basically. And so there's this evidence that decisions about how to move and what to eat are therefore made by parts of the organism as a whole. And so what happens is that if parts of it touch something attractive, like food, they pulse more quickly and widen out towards it. On the other hand, if it touches something unpleasant, like light or a noxious chemical, it will move more slowly and shrink. And so by adding up the cumulative effect of this exploration, the organism is able to find the best path without any quote unquote thought. Um, and so, yeah, it's just... It's really fascinating. They're very cool. Um, I, I could go on and tell you about a dozen more experiments uh, that have been conducted with slime molds. Um, and so, you know, it's just, they are incredibly fascinating. Um, 
Again, I'll post that. Um, actually, I've already posted the video, the one, but I will try and remember to post the longer one that has even more um, pretty pictures of them because they are actually pretty cool when you look at them, um, even though a lot of people find them to be a nuisance uh, when they find them, you know, in their garden. <laughs> but um, they're not actually even that much of a nuisance. They don't really do any damage. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, long lasting issues with them having uh, bloomed in a garden and then um, becoming spores. And so, yeah. Uh, I could, I literally could go on and on and on about this, but I will mention just one more really cool thing, which is that the millions of nuclei in a single plasmodian, plasmodium, excuse me, all divide at the same time, making them a great model organism for scientists studying mitosis, which is of course the process of nuclear division when the nucleus divides. And so, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, now the upshot of all of this is that they are fascinating, but they are not new. And in fact, they've actually been around for about a billion years. <laughs> so yeah, definitely not that, uh, that new to our, um, <laughs> to our planet and definitely not something that should be considered to be, um, necessarily a, uh, cool new thing. I mean, it's very cool and new to have it in a museum. I'm not sorry, in a zoo, uh, cause clearly slime molds are not necessarily something you would imagine to be in a zoo. So that's really cool. And I think that more people should know about slime molds. So I do like that aspect. Um, but I think it would always, it's always better to err on telling people the actual facts rather than kind of, hyping up things that are not actual facts. Um, so, you know, the fact that we do know that this is a protist and that it isn't, um, you know, neither animal, vegetable, nor mineral, as uh, one might say, uh, you know, it's just because it's something weird. I think that actually makes it better to be like, it's this weird thing that we do know about, but is totally weird nonetheless. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, it's all about uh, you know, your various interpretations of the things. So for instance, the idea about 720 sexes, it's like, mm, they're not really, you know, it's not about, it's genetic information, not really like gonads. So is it really fair to say 720 sexes? Or is it more just that there are a large variety of uh, the amoebas that need to be able to find other different amoebas in order to combine to create those zygotes. Um, you know, it's <laughs> it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. But again, slime molds are fascinating and amazing. So the more people who know about them, who learn about them, um, I am all for that because... I think, you know, obviously we talk about really important and cool and big animals like dolphins and whales and tigers and things like that all the time. Um, and those are all amazing animals, but some of these other things are really amazing too. Okay. 
So I have managed to talk about slime molds for quite a long time. Uh, but I think that at this point, I am out of time. Uh, so please do tune in next week. I will try and uh, find something equally amazing to talk about. Okay, have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.